You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Hello, and welcome to episode number 119 of the Business for Good podcast. First, let me say what an absolute pleasure it was to have a listener of the show come on as a guest in the last episode, number 118. If you didn't listen to Kelly Pan's story of how she started Impact Food to try to turn the tide for tuna, it is a riveting conversation with someone who I'm honored is not only a founder of a cool company working to help animals, but also a Business for Good podcast listener. Now, on to this episode, which is another great one about a cool company working to help animals and to replace the use of them in our economy. One day, while walking through the park and looking at all the leaves on the ground, Mira Namath had a thought. What could she make with all those leaves? Little did she know that her momentary thought experiment would lead her down an entirely new path in life. The lifelong vegetarian had a keen interest in design and materials, and she wanted to do something good for the world. Already aware of how much environmental and animal welfare harm the leather industry creates, Mira began working to bring a new kind of leather into the world, leather that she calls tree kind. After getting a grant from the UK government, Mira's new company, Biophilico, was born. Converting leaves and even agricultural byproducts into a plastic-free alternative leather, Biophilico's material creation process uses less than 1% of the water needed to make cow-based leather, all while being both animal-free and petrochemical-free as well. Founded in 2019, her company has gone to to raise seven figures of venture capital dollars, hire more than a dozen people, and start selling tree kind in the high-end watch market where you can now own a wristband that looks like leather but is really made from Mira's leaves. It's a fascinating and inspirational story that will leave you wanting to know more. Mira, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. (laughs) It is a great pleasure to have you here. I've been reading about what you're doing, and I'm super excited to have you on the show. So first, let me just state, like, I have no fashion sense whatsoever. I basically wear what my wife tells me to. I don't even think about it. But I know that is not the case for you because you've been interested in design and fashion for some time. So how did that start from when you were a kid? Were you just thinking, oh, I really love design? Is that what, what happened here? I guess partially, yeah. So I grew up in a family that is quite artistic. So my mom's an artist and my dad is a filmmaker. And I think that that was always kind of part of how my sister and I just grew up. And I I, I was always really interested in doing something artistic. And that became something within design. And my particular area was actually kind of more in in graphic design to begin with. But yeah, I think the the fashion part of it was also always kind of present. It was just kind of more of an of an interest. And basically what happened with our material tree kind how that whole thing came about that was actually based on me doing a second master in product design and yeah really being interested in how we could change the materials that that we use for objects 
Did you, Mira, have an interest in environmentalism or animal welfare, or was there some other motivating factor for you to think I would like to come up with something that didn't involve using cows to make the materials that we wear? Yeah, absolutely. So I had my daughter Nora in 2013, and I was really thinking about climate change because you really feel the weight of the responsibility, obviously, when you're bringing new life into the world and everything that's that's happening in the world currently. And at that point, I just really strongly felt that I wanted to be part of some kind of solution. Also being fully aware that I am not a scientist. So that was also kind of <laughs> how do you combine these things? Beyond that, I actually grew up as a vegetarian, just lifelong vegetarian. So it, it kind of goes yeah. hand in hand, I think. Were your parents vegetarian? Is that the reason you grew up that way? Yeah, exactly. So my parents were actually vegetarians when they met. So oh, it was okay. it was never a hard decision. Yeah. <laughs> so now that now I got to ask her, tell me your parents. You said your dad's a filmmaker. They're both vegetarian. Are they people who like have I seen their films? Is that like something that we should know about? <laughs> so my dad uh, made this film, or he directed this film. That's called Andy Warhol's Exploding Plastic Inevitable. Okay. And it's been shown at yeah various art museums and institutions around the world. So you can Google that. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll include a link to to that in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But that's pretty cool. You know, it, it happened for me kind of the other way around. So my uh, parents, especially my mom, were like always really into animal welfare when I was a kid. My mom mm. even worked at our local animal shelter. In fact, uh, even in her 70s, she still does that. However, you know, neither one of them were vegetarian. And when I became a vegetarian, which was about 30 years ago at, um, at age, I was like in 1993, I think I was 13 years old at the time. Wow. And it did have like a pretty substantial impact on them to the point where now I wouldn't say they are like vegetarians, but they're really close. They're, you know, for all intents and purposes, I would say they're vegetarian. Some purists would mm -hmm. probably not say so, but I'd say, yeah, you know, they're pretty much vegetarian. So anyway, that's cool that uh, it happened in the inverse for for you here. <laughs> you were just born into a vegetarian family. And so your parents must be pretty proud of what you're doing with Biophilica then. They are really proud. In some ways, I feel like they're almost like the proudest they've ever been, which is okay. nice. Yeah, they're extremely supportive yeah. of, of what we're doing. And so they, they talk about it all the time with everyone they know. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, you're well. You're going to get to talk about it with people who you don't know right now because your parents may be talking about what you're doing. But for the people who are listening to this conversation, they don't really know yet what you're doing. So, what is Biophilica? What are the products that you're making? I know what your motivation is that you're concerned mm -hmm. about climate, you're concerned about animals, but what is the actual goods that you're making? Mm -hmm. So at Biophilica, we've always had the mission to create bio-only products. So absolutely no plastic in our products. That is really, really key to us. So we've developed a product that's called TreeKind, and it is a leather alternative that obviously has no plastic or polyurethane as part of it whatsoever. And it also uses no toxic components. Uh, I think many of us have seen the, the issues with, you know, less regulated tanneries. And our product is, is specifically designed to not have those associated issues. Yeah. 
So what is the product? Like, you, what, what's the actual technology that you have developed to make something that you say is as good as or even better than cow's leather? So we're actually using a waste stream to create our material. And we specifically use autumn leaves or agricultural waste feedstocks. That's our number one feedstock. And then we've added other things in the, the kind of slurry that then becomes the, the leather, the leather alternative sheets that give the material certain properties. But all of these are 100% bio-based and that's what really sets it apart. So help me understand, Mira, because it sounds almost like alchemy, right? Like you're turning autumn leaves into something that functions like leather, but you're saying there's something else that goes in the slurry. You're saying it's Mm -hmm. not plastic. So what, like without giving away what your proprietary secrets are, like, what is it? You take leaves and then what happens to the leaves if they turn into a wristwatch? Yeah. So we mix other things into it. So a completely bio-based plasticizer, we add pigment to it. So we've looked at different kinds of pigments. One that we're a big fan of is an algae derived pigment. Yeah. These are the, some of the key ingredients that we use to create our, our material. And in some ways it's actually kind of similar to how you know, plastic leather alternatives are made. It's the same principles, except we use everything that is bio-derived. And so it's the whole leaf, including like the the actual leaf and the stem, like the hard stem that goes in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And we've tried a lot of different types of natural stocks. So I was mentioning agricultural feedstocks as well. So pretty Mm -hmm. much any type of leaf or stem will work within our formulation so it's 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 very kind of open that way yeah are you running a fermentation is there some type of enzymatic process like what is occurring when you add these other ingredients to the weaves that turns them into something that isn't going to just biodegrade within days like the way that a leaf would yeah so we don't ferment it we we essentially create a matrix with this slurry And so when that dries, that's when we get a really strong material. And that's how it doesn't kind of fall apart. And uh, we get this question a lot, you know, how does it not just instantly start biodegrading? It's quite similar to, you know, a cotton t-shirt or a straw hat, for example, that it is 100% natural stock that goes into the making of that product. But unless you kind of submerge it in the lake or, you know, throw it in a, in a forest, it's not going to start biodegrading. Yeah, I, I imagine that if I took the T-shirt I'm currently wearing, which is made out of cotton and put it in a lake, it would probably degrade faster. But I do put it in like the equivalent of a lake, which is a washing machine, and it gets mm-hmm. filled up and it's jammed around in there, maybe even worse than a lake because it's mm-hmm. really getting thrown around as opposed to being stationary. I presume there's something in this shirt that keeps it from degrading because I've had this thing for a very long time. I mean, I you go, yeah. really, we're probably like 15 years of a yeah. t-shirt and it's still, it doesn't have any holes or anything. It's amazing. So it is yeah. the same. So for the tree kind that you're making, like if I had a, you know, a belt made out of that and I wore it every day, would it eventually um, start degrading? So it would act in a similar way to how leather acts as well. So as you can imagine, we've done, 
a very large number of ISO tests on our material. And so what that does really is just replicate usage. And so we can see what it looks like if it would be used, you know, X amount of days for, you know, one or two years, for example. So we can see exactly what it looks like after that. And it does behave very similar to, to leather. Interesting. What was the inspiration for this, Mira? Like, how, how did you think you're, you know, you're walking through the park and you see a bunch of weaves and you think, ah, I can turn that into leather. <laughs> so like, you know, I, I presume that's not the idea that went into your mind. There must have been something that was the progenitor of this idea. So h- how did it come into your or somebody else's mind that maybe you could turn leaves and other agricultural waste products into a wearable, fashionable weather? Yeah, so I was, I was doing my second master this was happening after i had had my my daughter and was really thinking about all of these big uh, problems that we are surrounded by i decided to go back to college and when doing a master in uh, product design i was walking sort of alongside Hyde Park in London. And because I'm a designer and also because I've done a lot of botanical illustration, I have always been interested in natural forms. So I, I, and I honestly can't even remember what I picked up off the street that day. Could have been a leaf, could have been a piece of bark, could have been a stick, can't remember. But I, I picked this, this object, this natural object up And something just clicked, I think, in that moment where I was thinking, you know, we could use this as a raw input to create a material that could then, you know, create mainstream objects. And so it was a very open-ended idea in the beginning. It it wasn't, you know, I'm going to make this into a leather alternative. That, That was so early. It was more just like a material And I then went about, you know, performing a whole slew of experiments as a designer. And yeah, there were so many different outcomes. There were, you know, rigid materials, there were flexible materials, there were foams, there were all kinds of things. And then I just kind of continued on the path that that felt like it was showing the most potential. And and that ended up being the, the leather alternative. Interesting. Were you doing these experiments yourself or was there somebody else who had a more scientific background that was helping you? Not at that stage. So it was it was me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, I am, of course, impressed by that. And I I do want to ask just for the way person, you know, if you look up publicly available information about the company, you talk about how you're making your weather from lignocellulosic feedstocks. So for the way person who doesn't know what ligno or cellulosic means, what is Mm -hmm. a lignocellulosic feedstock? Are you referring to leaves? Is that just Mm -hmm. a fancy way of saying leaves? It is a fancy way of saying leaves. Exactly correct. So lignin is is part of most wood material and and leaves as well. And obviously cellulose, that's something that we're we're fairly familiar with. Obviously, it's derived from from wood material as well. There are a couple of other key components in wood as well. There's hemicellulose as well. There in leaves in particular, there tend to be tannins as well. And lignin is what you remove when you're making paper, for example. So what that really also denotes is that we don't remove the lignin from our, our process. We're, we're using the, the whole leaf and, and stem completely intact as is. 
Interesting. So when you were doing all these experiments and you're figuring out how to make a more rigid or a softer material, was this for the purpose of starting a company? Or were you just thinking, oh, this would be cool for artwork? Like, or were you thinking, no, I'm going to found a company and raise millions of dollars to actually create something <laughs> new in the world? Yeah, I mean... No, that wasn't the original idea. I was, I think, just taking it sort of step by step and seeing what the what this could be. And the material just kind of kept giving. It kept showing more and more promise. And after graduating, I, I joined an accelerator. And then things just kind of kept going. And we, we got a grant and then we got investment. And so things just kind of snowballed in a way, which I think in the back of my head, I remember saying quite early on that I would love to work with some of the brands that we're actually working with now. So in the back of my head, I think there was this thought that there would be the opportunity to do something with this quite early on. But when you're that early in the process, you also just want to pace yourself a little bit. And yeah, just kind of go where it takes you and, 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 you know, with your fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For early stage entrepreneurship, you're definitely keeping your fingers crossed because there's such a high mortality rate for these early stage companies. Yeah. Just for people who might be thinking about starting their own venture here, you know, you mentioned that you went to an accelerator, you got a grant or the names of the accelerator and the grant so that other people who are following your footsteps may be able to apply to those same programs. Yeah, so we joined an accelerator in London that's called Central Research Lab, so CRL. And yeah, I honestly, I can't really say enough nice things about them. They were really, really fantastic. In the UK, there is Innovate UK that funds innovation. And uh, there are a lot of grants or grant calls that are, are open at any given time. So I would strongly recommend that as well. For people who are in the, the EU, there are lots of European opportunities as well. Some of those are open for, for the UK still. And yeah, I would really recommend all of these things. We were also part of another accelerator that's called Fashion for Good. They actually then ended up becoming one of our investors as well. And they've been phenomenal also all the way through. So we're we're just really lucky that we've been able to be part of these great networks, essentially. Yeah, cool. Well, we will include the links to those accelerators and grants, grant programs in the show notes for this episode at businessforgood.com, excuse me, businessforgoodpodcast.com. So Mira, let me ask you, like, you know, you go through these accelerators, you get a grant. At some point, you feel like you have something that is not only promising enough, but that actually has some type of an IP moat around it, mm -hmm. that you could start raising venture capital, which you did. So when was that? And how do you go out to raise capital? and how much have you raised so far? Yeah, so we, we, we got the grant, as mentioned, first. And then we were speaking. It's, it's also all about the different connections, I think, as well. So I mentioned CRL. And through them, I was talking to someone who then connected me to another accelerator that is also an investor. And they, they become or they became our first investor, really. And they're called Sustainable Ventures. So, yeah, they came in at a point where 
It was really just perfect timing where we needed the the venture capital and they were super interested in in what we were doing. And excitingly, they're actually, they are highlighting us as a kind of key showcase for all of the new startups that they're they're interviewing. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. So uh, I know that in 2022, you raised a 1.2 million pound seed round. So congratulations yeah. on that. Is, you. you know, 2022 was definitely not an easy time to be fundraising. So how did you cut through all of the noise in such a bad time to be attracting investment and, and generate that kind of a seed round? Yeah, it was also partially through through fashion for good. They actually connected us with Rhapsody, who was our seed investor. And yeah, again, fashion for good has just been really fantastic in that aspect. So in that round, we got investment both from Rhapsody and from Fashion for Good as well. And, and that was a really good combination, I think. That was also through us working with Fashion for Good for some time. So we were working with three different large-scale brands. And Fashion for Good, you know, knew us and saw how we operated. And that's what really led us to, I think, that investment and that kind of recommendation as well. Cool. So a year later, you have how many employees now and what are the highlights? What have you done with that, with that, with those funds that you raised to advance the company? We have done so many things. <laughs> so we have 14 employees. So we, we immediately went out and, and recruited more people that were very important and uh, needed for our growth. We moved, so we had an 89 square meter facility in, in East London, and we basically quadrupled that space. We moved into our demo facility. So the key step there really was to set up continuous production, which we've done, and to really prove that this is a material that can't only be made as sheets, but really continuously on rolls. And beyond that, we've also hit a number of, of milestones where we've, we've sold material. So that was also another thing that I wanted to mention that really played in or played into our, our whole progress. When we got the, the grant that I mentioned, we also started working with a watch brand that's called ID Genève Watches. It's a Swiss sustainable watch brand, and we're huge fans of their work. And that was really important for our progress as well, because it gave us a really clear set of requirements that we were developing towards. And that's why we today have our material on or as part of watch traps. And so if somebody who is listening wants to earn a watch with a tree kind band made by Biophilica, that's the brand that they would get it from. Exactly. And you can order that online. Uh, yes, uh, I believe we can order that online or uh, depending on where they are now on production, uh, pre-order for the, the next uh, collection. Okay, cool. Well, we'll include a, a link to that as well at businessforgoodpodcast.com so that people, if they want to own a piece of your early history, uh, can have that. Let me ask you, like, you're, you're claiming that it's functionally comparable to cow's leather, but what about on price? Like, if, if, they, if that watch company were using cow's leather as opposed to tree kind, would it cost them more or less money? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. So with cow's leather and various animal leathers, as you can imagine, there are lots of different grades and different price points. So there are very high quality leathers, and then there are, you know, the 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 cheaper quality as well. So it's a bit of a range. Very expensive leathers, they're up at you know, 100 pounds per square meter, 120, 140. And then you have a more affordable leather that can be sort of more around 50 or 60 pounds per square meter. Yeah. Sorry also for doing all of the, this in sort of more the local well, currency. Uh, that, that, that's okay. As long as you, as long as you give the, the wholesale price for the tree kind in the same format. So absolutely. You know, Pounds per square meter. So, it's, yeah. you know, the range on cow's leather, 60 to 140 pounds. What about tree kind? So tr- with tree kind, we have projected for a mainstream material. This is a fully scaled material around 50 pounds per square meter. We also plan to have a premium material that will be higher priced. It will sit more around 90, 100 per square meter. Okay, cool. So comparable within the range. It's not as if, you know, like, uh, for example, in the world that I normally inhabit, which is the alternative meat world, most of those alternative meats are nowhere near the price of animal based meat, oftentimes are 200% more or even more in some cases. Um, Yeah, you're saying... Yeah, I w- no, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say that exactly. I think we're very much on par or lower. One reason why it will always be hard for us to, to compete with, for example, polyurethane or PVC leather alternatives is because of the cost of labor. So because we have always planned on producing our material locally, we will have higher labor costs and higher facility costs. So that can't really be compared to, you know, C or PU production that's uh, outsourced to countries with, with, with much lower costs. If the plastic leather or pleather manufacturers were producing in the UK like you are, but their you know, base material is still petrochemicals as opposed to the, the leaf litter that you're working with, would their costs be comparable or would they still be cheaper? So I haven't run that calculation specifically, but knowing the cost of, of labor and the facility cost, my thought would be that they would be quite similar because that's really the, the key difference. We don't have a particularly expensive raw material input, and that's by design. We want our material to be democratic and to be accessible by as many people as possible, uh, but to also you know, pay fair salaries and also the cost of, of uh, facilities and equipment. That's the, the fair cost of our material. Okay. So if you are making enough to make wristwatches right now, I, that's the only commercialized product, right? There's not, there's not other products in the market? Okay. Correct. Okay. So, you know, presumably you, you want to do dramatically more than that, right? You want to be having tree kind in car seats, wallets, shoes, belts, uh, everywhere where leather is used. So right now you're getting leaves from the park, essentially. How do you scale this? Like, How do you get an industrial quantity of leaves or other materials that you could actually go from making enough for a niche watch to enough for, you know, a company like an automaker to put in all their cars? 
Yeah, so we're actually already in touch with a, a farming company in the in the UK. So they own a whole number of farms in the UK. So we have access to a lot of agricultural feedstocks through them. They, on top of that, own greenhouses in Spain and the Netherlands. We also have connections actually also in the Netherlands from, from waste collectors there that also collect, you know, autumn leaves. So there are a lot of opportunities, I would say, to scale to very large quantities. With one of the, the, those waste collectors that we've spoken to, they have so much green waste that we're almost even fully scaled with a fully scaled factory. We would almost be, you know, like too, too small for them. So the, the feedstock, I think we have a, a really, really great trajectory for. Great. Great. So let me just ask you then, you know, if I were an investor and I was thinking about, is Biophilica a good bet? What if I said to you, Mira, mm. this sounds really cool. But you, on your own, without a scientific background, figured out a way to do this. So why can't somebody else who also has a million or two million pounds in their pocket figure out a way to do this? And maybe they'll compete with you and find some way to produce it in where labor standards are lower. And so they're going to have a cheaper price and, and, and undercut you. So what's the moat? Like what protects you from somebody else doing what you're doing? So we have a patent for this particular reason. It, it is really to protect our competitive advantage and yeah, our, our innovation. So that's really kind of the, the key protection that we have in place. Beyond that, even though I was the person who started developing the material, uh, obviously we have a, a whole team now of, of scientists. We also work together with a company that sits within Eurofins, which is a big testing and research company. And they were also part of our material development. So I would say a, a lot has happened since, you know, I was, yeah, combining <laughs> very coarse, you know, parts of, of leaves with uh, a whole number of different kinds of binders. We've mm -hmm. come a long way and the, the scientific knowledge, the know-how, and also the, the complexity of the design of the material is now just far beyond anything it was in the beginning. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll link to, uh, presuming it's publicly available, we'll link to your patent as well so people can go uh, marvel at the cool technology that you and your team, Mira, have invented. Well, let me ask you, you know, you obviously have created this company. You've got more than a dozen people working for you now. You're hoping, I'm sure, to be working for many more years at Biophilica and, and turn it into a behemoth of alternative leather. So you are hopefully going to be occupied for some time. But I bet that you have other ideas ideas that you think would be good if they came into the world. So what would you recommend for somebody listening who's inspired by the journey that you've been on, Mira, to do themselves? Something that you think is important that they might be able to start their own company doing? Yeah, so I have I have a couple of ideas here. <laughs> I hope that's okay. So one of the the first things that I think is really important to do is to go out there and see what what different waste streams are underutilized today. I think that's a really good starting point. There are a lot. So 
I've seen a little bit of movement in that area, but ceramics, for example, is is hard to recycle. So that, for example, is a, a really interesting area, I think. I think there are other areas within food waste as well, potentially post-consumer food waste that could be really interesting as well. And then I think it's also really interesting to look at what companies say that they have problems with. And I think that could be a really interesting project with reaching out to large companies and asking them what their sustainability challenges are, like precise sustainability challenges. So with one company, I kind of randomly uh, found out that staples for furniture, that was a really difficult material or, or product really to replace. And that's that's really interesting knowledge to have. So I think you can start at either end. Either you start at the the feedstock end, or you can look at essentially sort of a, a product uh, gap analysis together with, with companies. I would also say beyond that, that something that I think is missing is more kind of systems thinking around composting in, in an urban setting. So when we say that a material is compostable, that's great. But what does that mean for people who live in apartments? So I think that it's that that's a really important area as well to think about how we can progress that. Sure. Yeah. And we've had episodes on with people who are making like bioplastics and other things relating to compostability. And it has been very riveting to learn the difference between something that is compostable at your home and something that is only possible to compost in an industrial composting setting where there's like basically high heat or pressure that breaks it down and whereas it really wouldn't break down in nature for the most part. And so like we get all of these like cups and bowls and all this stuff from restaurants that say compostable, but mm-hmm. if you bury them in your backyard, mm-hmm. they're not going to degrade, you know? Yeah, it, PLA comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, we've done other episodes on, on that. We'll include some of those in the show notes for this episode as well for people who want to go back and listen to those back episodes which are really riveting but thank you for those ideas Mira the ceramics one is particularly interesting and hopefully somebody listening to this will start their own company and maybe they'll come on and, and onto the show later and they'll say you know what Mira Mira Namath was the reason that I started this company we'll see <laughs> okay finally so uh, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of resources that you rely on to help yourself to be a better CEO and entrepreneur and, and innovator are there any that you would recommend that have been helpful for you that you think others would benefit from? Yeah, I would uh, love to. So one th- one area that I think is really interesting, uh, I think this is interesting for, for entrepreneurs especially, I think it's interesting for human beings, is looking at philosophers. So looking at, yeah, interesting thoughts from interesting people. I mean, the the famous philosophers they are the 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 best of you know human thinkers so i think that is a great place to oh, to start I, I can't i can't leave it anonymously though you're the greatest one to, <laughs> to whom are you referring are you, you talking about socrates and aristotle and plato or are you talking about peter singer like what what era are you thinking here well, I, I like to, to look at all of them. So I would almost say go broad rather than go deep with the philosophers. Uh, so I'm going to cherry pick here a little bit, but you know, some of my favorites. So Socrates, for example, thought that what is beautiful isn't what is aesthetically 
beautiful. And that for me as a designer is, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about. What he saw as beautiful was something that was morally beautiful. And that has, in I would say, you know, in a small part also been inspiration for what we do at Biophilica. Another thing that I think is interesting also from a, a climate change perspective is Kant and his categorical imperative, where basically if, you know, the majority of, of people can't do a certain thing, then you shouldn't do that thing either. So that I think is really interesting as well. And I think that talks a lot about also, you know, resource uh, sharing and uh, yeah, just a number of, of areas. It kind of applies to life in general. You know, I've thought about the categorical imperative and, and thought about living in a house versus apartment. And my wife and I live in a house. And from the looks of your video screen right now, it looks like you live in a house as well. And I've wondered about this because it's such an inefficient use of land. If, you know, if everybody lived in a house, like mm-hmm. the human footprint would be so much bigger. Mm-hmm. And I've wondered, like, I'm in a single family house with my wife and our dog. Like, is that actually less ethical than living in an apartment? And I'm not you know, challenging you. I do the same thing that you do. I live in a house and I I like living in a house. So, and I like having a backyard and and all of that, but I've wondered like, am I doing something that's pretty suboptimal here? Yeah, no, I've, I've thought of exactly the, the same. So to make it even worse, this is a summer house. So I, I am half Swedish, half American. And in Sweden, it's, it's relatively standard to have a summer house. It's a small population, a very large country. So you can see kind of historically where that that originated from. I, I will say with our house here, we share that with our whole family. So it's a multi-generational summer house, at okay. least. And yeah. it also uses geothermal heating. So we've got a couple of things uh, going yeah. for it. But I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of, you know, housing optimization that could be done for sure. I think what's clear in both your case and my case, Mira, is that we need to be sure that we're doing extra amounts of good in the world through the businesses that we run in order to compensate for the harm that we're doing by having <laughs> having what we have. So maybe okay. maybe maybe when biophilica gets really big and you displace the cattle industry with, you know, using recycled tree leaves, how many houses you have will be the last consideration in your ecological impact on the world. <laughs> well, I I I don't think any more houses are 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 needed. I I I've I've thought of, I've thought a little bit about how many houses a person needs. <laughs> so yeah, okay, <laughs> all right. Well, I, I will certainly be rooting for Biophilica to help to displace the cattle industry, Mira. And I am really grateful for what you're doing. Congratulations on the success that you've had so far. And I look forward to having people send me photos of the watches that they have with your tree kind leather on them because. That would be really cool to see some watches from listeners who now have tree kind around their wrist. Fantastic. Can I add one more thing, Paul? Please do. I also just wanted to mention that 
as part of our development, our, our tree kind development, we also developed a fully bio-based and that is something that is also incredibly needed in the, in the world. A glue that is affordable and has no petrochemicals in it. So I just wanted to mention that because it's, it's both a product that we're using with our tree kind, but we're also developing it as a standalone uh, product because we wanted to have further impact just beyond, you know, our product. Well, that's great. I mean, lots of companies that start with one product and eventually, you, you know, evolve into a, a much broader company. So, you know, the 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 first Mac, obviously, it would have been hard for them to imagine iPods and iPhones, but maybe Biophilico will be a, a glue empire as well someday. So we'll see. <laughs> Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, Mira. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.